So I wonder how many of you feel totally prepared for Christmas. By show of hands, that's no one. All right. <laughs> Several years ago, Tasha's family joined us in Florida for Christmas. We woke up that morning to discover that we had no butter. Anyone else been in that situation? You know, this season has a way of catching us off guard, unprepared, which is why we've spent our Advent series focusing on how we prepare room for Jesus. Right? Waking up to find that you don't have what you need in the refrigerator is one thing. Waking up on Christmas morning to find that you haven't prepared your heart to celebrate the birth of Christ, well, friends, that can't be fixed by finding the one convenience store that's still open. So this morning, we're continuing our study in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. The verses will also be up on the screens. And I also would say, if you need a Bible, uh, you can walk through those sanctuary doors straight ahead and find a whole uh, shelf full of Bibles. We'd love for you to take one if you need one. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, and what we're going to learn from this passage is that people who prepare room for Jesus know these three things about him. That he's the answer for rebellious people, he's the answer to our suffering, and he's the answer to our need for significance. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endured forever. So when was the last time that you ignored a warning? 
Say, I bet there are a few among us who routinely stand on that rung, you know, the one that you aren't supposed to pass on a ladder. And notice, notice our passage begins with obedience to God's warnings. So look back at verse 12. The wise men who had come from the east to visit Jesus were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. So they found another way home. And now in another dream, God warns Joseph to take Jesus and his mother and flee to Egypt because of Herod's plan to eliminate Christ. We know that's, whatever, that's what Herod did whenever he felt his position of power threatened. So Joseph was warned. And look again at his response. He rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Many of us have garages packed full, packed to the gills because we have one day that we keep promising we're gonna clear out all the junk. Notice that's not Joseph's approach. He didn't even push his obedience off till he had breakfast. The warning came at night and it was at night that he obeyed. Friends, just consider for a moment if your obedience to God is like that of the wise men in Joseph. Is there any sense of urgency when it comes to doing what God commands? Any urgency in finding out what God commands? And we can't, we can't defend our disobedience or our slowness by claiming, you know, we'd surely listen if we could only receive a dream like this. We should understand that these, these dreams are unique. And that's true throughout the Bible. Dreams and visions often occur at unique and unrepeatable times in history. And so we can see that here. Right? Special intervention was required for God to get his message to the wise men and Joseph. But God's common, God's ordinary way of speaking to us is not through dreams or visions because God has delivered to us in his word all that he commands of us. And all that we need to lead an obedient and godly life is found in this word. So do you see how that, do you see how that leads us to value and prioritize what we're doing here? to value gathering weekly with God's people for worship. Right? It can be an inconvenience to make it to church, and I admit, I don't have to get a two-year-old out the door, but friends, ask yourself, is it wise to neglect putting yourself under the teaching of God's word? Right? Do we tell young drivers to go ahead and Ignore those red signs at intersections. Right? We need warnings just as much as the wise men in Joseph did. And that's why we set aside this time to listen to God from his word. The God who spoke to the wise men and Joseph by dreams is the same God who is speaking to us this morning in his word. So you can't argue with me that you need to sleep through the sermon in hopes that you'll hear from God. 
You just have to pay attention and pray for your pastor. And if you're new here or not a Christian, what the Bible teaches, what we want you to know is that the Bible teaches that God's greatest warning doesn't concern what latest food might contribute to high cholesterol. God's greatest warning concerns our personal sin. Because all of us bear God's image, but none of us, we know, have honored that image well. We have not given a perfect reflection of his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. And everyone here has sinned against a holy and loving God. And that sin will condemn us to an eternal destruction if we, if we delay. If we neglect this warning to flee to Christ for safety. I want you to know that sin loves to deceive. It, it promises pleasure and protection. It often encourages us to delay and put things off till tomorrow. But God has told us that if we cling to our sin instead of Christ, well, God is just. And it's good of him that he would give us what our sins deserve. So friends, please, please do not neglect that warning. And we love to help you understand how to obey this warning in your own life because it really is the most pressing matter for you. Now, while Matthew certainly commends Joseph's obedience, I also wanna say it's not the focus of these verses. What's most important to Matthew is what Jesus's flight into Egypt tells us about him. And this flight into and then out of Egypt tells us that Jesus is the answer for rebellious people. How so? Well, let's think, what was Israel's exodus from Egypt all about? Well, God did not redeem his people from Pharaoh's bondage to simply send them on a vacation. But getting out from Egypt was not like hitting the lottery and getting an early retirement. We know that his intentions were much bigger. So listen to what Moses says. Listen to what God says to Moses in the book of Exodus. This is right after God has, has led the people through the Red Sea and, and right before he gives them the Ten Commandments in his law. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So I want you to see that the exodus, this getting out of Egypt, was about establishing God's people to be his redemptive agents in the world. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their freedom, was, their freedom was bound up with a way of living that was going to bring God's glory to the nations. But you don't have to read very far to know that that plan was continually frustrated by Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel didn't obey God's voice. The nation continually violated the covenant and turned away from being God's treasured possession. 
And so for the Old Testament, for the, and so for the Old Testament prophets, when they look back, when they look back on the Exodus, instead of it being this, this event that they could celebrate and rejoice over, it really was an occasion to reflect upon the sad reality of Israel's waywardness in response to the faithfulness of God. They had received this great gift of grace and yet turned away from the one who gave it to them. Right? The prophets, as they looked around, they did not see a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. They saw people choosing to abandon the one who had always been faithful, who had always been loving. And that theme of this disobedience and this waywardness is particularly expressed in the book of Hosea, which is where Matthew gets this verse, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in that chapter, Hosea, he records God's anguish for his wayward people. So listen to verses 2 and 4 as we hear God reflect on his experience with his people after the exodus. God says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. So what does God owe to a people who chose to turn away? I think there are only really two options. Rebellious people can receive judgment or God in his grace and faithfulness can offer his people another exodus. And at the end of Hosea 11, God promises that judgment, judgment will not be the final word because a future exodus, another deliverance awaits God's people. Listen to what God promised through Hosea. He says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. And that's what Jesus, the faithful son, the greater Moses came to accomplish. See, at the first exodus, when God freed his people from the grip of Pharaoh's evil hand, you see, that was simply a foreshadowing of the greater release that Jesus would bring. It is a release from the grip of sin. It is freedom from, that, from all that sin inflicts upon us. You see, I think we make room. We adjust our lives for all sorts of things that promise deliverance, that seem to suggest that we'll find our freedom there. And so we're always on to the next 
thing. You might not make a sacrifice to Baal, but I wonder what are you tempted to bow down to in hopes that you'll find an escape. You'll find a relief from what's wrong in your life. It may be finding blame in others. You know, developing this critical eye that is always seeing what's wrong out there, but never what's wrong within us. Maybe it's giving into fits of anger. Maybe it's giving into drunkenness or some form of sexual immorality. And I know all these things. All these things seem to offer relief, but just for a moment. But like all idols, they can never take away what's wrong in our hearts. They can never offer you true freedom from your own sin. And for that, we must make room for the only deliverer who can actually deliver what he's promised. It is in Christ, the greater Moses, that you will find your true freedom and peace. So Jesus is the answer for rebellious people, and he's the answer to our suffering. In verses 16 to 18, we, we see immense suffering and grief in Bethlehem because of Herod's atrocity. Because the, the wise men didn't bring back word to where Herod could exactly find Jesus, he did what he thought would ensure his death. He had all the males who were two years old or under killed. And I know what's difficult for all of us is that we just saw God sovereignly intervene to warn Joseph. And so we wonder, why didn't God warn these families? Why not change the hearts of the men sent to carry out Herod's order? Like many places in the Bible where evil plans are carried out, we aren't given a clear answer. And the problem of persistent evil is difficult. It is difficult to understand, given what we know about God's absolute sovereignty, his absolute goodness and power. But I do want you to see something in these verses. Do you realize that Herod failed in what he set out to accomplish? And his sword was aimed at Christ, and Herod missed. And that doesn't take away the reality that many families suffered because of Herod. But we should see in these verses that evil will never fully triumph because evil can never eliminate Christ. And that is the only way that evil could ever prevail because it is only Christ who is capable to put an end to all opposition to God. Herod's fury meant great pain for those in Bethlehem. 
But Herod's fury, just like the fury and rage of any evil men today, it could not stop God's plan for the ultimate good of the world to go forth. And what Matthew wants us to do is understand this event in the context of the verse he quotes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 15. And Matthew is not claiming that Jeremiah predicted Herod's atrocity. It's more that the events that Jeremiah wrote about, they see their fulfillment, their culmination, their completement in Christ. And when we do that, we see that Jesus is the answer for our suffering. We know that Jeremiah had a hard assignment from God. His task was to announce that God's judgment would come upon the southern kingdom of Judah by means of the rising superpower, Babylon. And he had to disabuse the people from the idea that their exile to Babylon would be short. He told them to get comfortable in their new home. But he also proclaimed a message of future restoration. And that's where this verse Matthew quotes falls. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah is all about God's promise that the suffering of God's people will not be the last word. You see, Jeremiah 31, 15 is situated within a broader context of good news. God will bring his people home. Promises will be fulfilled. And so in response to Israel's weeping in verse 15, listen to what God says in the following verses. God tells his people, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, and your children shall come back to their own country. What Matthew wants us to see is that with the coming of Christ into the world, the hope for our future has been realized. And it has been realized through the sufferings of Christ. Right? The promise of a future hope is only ours because Christ wasn't spared from the cross. Friends, we cannot have a hopeful future if our sins aren't forgiven. If we don't receive new hearts and a new obedience to God, forgiveness of sin new hearts, a new obedience. Do you see that in Christ, that is what we receive? That's the new unbreakable covenant that Christ establishes by his life and death. So what could make, what could make for a brighter future? And so when we experience suffering, we need to look to Christ and see that a better future is opened for us. And what that means is that all suffering can be redeemed by God 
that suffering cannot be the last word for the Christian. See, Herod unwittingly meant to destroy that future for you and me. And he inflicted real pain on real men and women. And that same kind of pain and suffering is experienced today. But whatever affliction we experience in this life, it will never take away what Christ has secured. And in fact, affliction and suffering today can only make our future hope more glorious. Friends, suffering is hard to bear, but it's also true suffering is a servant for us, and it will work for our ultimate good. Because suffering in a powerful and unique way, it makes room for more of Christ in our lives. I know many of you can speak quite powerfully to that truth. See, suffering turns us to a future that we cannot make for ourselves. It's a future that cannot be taken away from us. It's a future that death cannot keep us from. And that's what Matthew wants us to see here. There will be suffering in this life. But don't let it cloud your vision to what's ahead. Because there will come a day when all weeping is over. When truly the last tear falls and there is no more danger. There are no more Herods. And so let's pray that God will continue to make us a church that is sympathetic to those who are suffering and to a, and a comfort to those who are in need. And so our final point, Jesus is the answer to our need for significance. So Matthew tells us that when Herod died, Joseph brought Jesus and Mary back to Israel, but he didn't return to Bethlehem. Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, was ruling there. It could be argued that Archelaus was more of a tyrant, more of a madman than his father. And so Joseph, again, warned in a dream, chose Nazareth for the family. So that, as Matthew tells us, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he'd be called a Nazarene. And notice, there's something different about this fulfillment. Matthew attributes it to the prophets. He's saying more than one prophet said Christ would be called a Nazarene. That is someone from Nazareth. But what's interesting is that no prophet makes this exact claim. You can't search the Old Testament and find this verse like the ones that we just looked at. So what is Matthew doing? Is it the case that Matthew should have read his Bible better? Well, here's what we need to know. Here's the key. Nazareth was among the most insignificant towns of the time. If you were from Nazareth, it meant you were overlooked, probably even despised, 
certainly dismissed. And so what Matthew is doing is he's picking up on this theme that is found, that is found in several prophets, that the Messiah would come to his people and that he would receive the kind of welcome that someone from Nazareth would receive, that he'd be overlooked, that he'd be despised, that he'd be rejected. Do you see that was Jesus's reception. He came to his own and was dismissed as a fraud and a lunatic. So friends, consider how low the Son of God came to save us. And ask yourself, what could be more significant in your life than the fact that Jesus was dishonored for your sake? And so I wonder where you're chasing significance this morning. Maybe we find it in our career. Maybe we find it in the, our performance as parents, how well our children are succeeding. Or maybe we have a feeling of a lack of significance because none of those things are going very well. Friends, the answer to the pursuit of significance is found in a man that many continue to dismiss today. So what empty pursuit might we abandon if we found our need for significance satisfied in the lowly life the Son of God embraced for proud sinners like you and me? We probably wouldn't care so much if we were overlooked, maybe mocked for our faith. We might not worry about what we don't have or what someone else just got. There might be more freedom and joy in that life than the one that we've experienced chasing what the world says is significant. So friends, don't waste your life trying to find significance outside of Christ because nothing can raise us up but the good news that Christ came down and he has made room for each of us in his kingdom. Let us pray. Lord God, as we continue to worship you this morning and throughout this day, we ask that you would fill us with great awe and gratitude for the mercy and the grace that you have shown to us in your Son. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take the truths that we've heard today and that you would seal them in our hearts transform the way we think, the way we speak, and the way we live. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.